Hello, my lovely listeners. I'm Dr. Mary Barson. And I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. Welcome to this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. Good morning, Mayors. How are you today? I'm really, really well. I'm excited about today's topic. How are you? Uh, I'm also great. I had a wonderful sleep last night and I know we are talking about sleep in another upcoming episode, but it does make us feel magnificent. It is the sweet elixir of life. Absolutely. So, Maz, the last couple of weeks we've talked about the thought model and the psychological, I guess, ramifications of desire to eat and neutralizing negative thoughts. But the other thing that happens, I guess, with some of these thoughts is that we can become really stressed often because of thoughts even. But what I'd love you to talk to our listeners today about is the even the biological or physiological responses of stress and how that can cause weight gain. Yes, I would love to. So stress has become an epidemic in modern society. I think that really most people have become mostly stressed most of the time and it really is a big problem for our health. I think that stress Chronic stress is implicated in pretty much every single negative health consequence that I see in patients. It's not always the causative factor, but it usually is a causative factor. Maz, can you just explain what chronic means for people? I think sometimes we use it in a different term. So what what does chronic mean? So in the medical jargon world in which I live, chronic means long-term. It doesn't necessarily mean severe or terrible or extreme. It means day in, day out, chronic, over a long period of time. And the opposite in medical jargon world is acute. So we can talk about acute stress, which is just short sharp stress that doesn't last very long versus chronic stress, which is stress that happens, you know, most days a week, week in, week out for months, years or our entire lives. And they are very different biologically. It's the same process, but the health consequences are extremely different. So it is very normal to have acute stress in our lives. You know, you've got to sit in an exam, you're acutely stressed. You have to run across the traffic, you might get acutely stressed. You have to do a public talk, you might be acutely stressed. These are all just normal and natural. But when we become chronically stressed, things can really start to go awry. And I love to think of health and wellness through an evolutionary lens I find it a very, very helpful way to view human health and happiness. So if you can imagine us humans, uh, 30,000 years ago, we are wild humans, genetically exactly the same as we are now, but living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle in the savannah of Africa. And we had been living this wild hunter-gatherer lifestyle for nearly all of our evolution 
And so we are essentially hunter-gatherers. That's what we're designed to be. And many of our health problems are that we have taken this genetic hunter-gatherer and plonked them down in the middle of a modern society in a modern lifestyle, which creates a massive mismatch between our genes and our environment, which creates a lot of our modern diseases. So stress, back to the stress piece of the puzzle. Okay, so we're humans evolving in the plains of Africa. We evolved to actually be pretty calm most of the time. We would have been in what we call the rest and digest mode where we were just pretty relaxed. We weren't particularly stressed. We were sitting around digesting our food, being okay. And then every now and again, some danger would come along and we would have to negotiate that danger and we would have a short, sharp period of acute stress. And our bodies would do these nearly magical things to help us navigate that stressful situation. And pretty much all animals do this. So, for example, imagine uh, you've got a hunter-gatherer woman out picking berries. She's got the baby strapped to her back and she's gathering berries, possibly singing a little song to herself as she does so. She's fine. She's in rest and digest mode. And then along comes a saber-toothed tiger. Okay. So, our cave woman sees the saber-toothed tiger. She gets acutely stressed. If you could imagine that, you know, there was a saber-toothed tiger next to you right now, you would get stressed. You're probably getting some stress just thinking about it, just imagining the saber-toothed tiger being next to you. So all of these wonderful physiological changes happen in that woman so that she is ready to try and survive this situation. She goes from rest and digest into fight or flight. And this is a, they have some technical terms. Rest and digest is our parasympathetic mode. And she goes from rest and digest into fight or flight, which is our sympathetic mode. All right. So what happens to this woman when she sees this saber-toothed tiger? Lots of things. First of all, her cortisol levels go up, the stress hormone and those levels go up. Adrenaline and noradrenaline also elevate all of these very sudden instantaneous hormonal changes, which then cause a whole lot of cascades throughout her body, getting her ready to either run away or fight the tiger. So her blood pressure goes up. Her blood sugar goes up so that her muscles have got extra energy to move fast if they need to. She becomes more mentally alert, more hyper aware. Her blood actually becomes thicker and a bit more clotty. That's in case she gets uh, bitten by the tiger. She's less likely to bleed to death. Also, her immune system, her inflammation starts to ramp up. Again, in case she gets bitten by the tiger, her immune system's already on the front foot to try and fight off any potential infection. And all of these things happen pretty much instantaneously. And in that that situation back in hunter-gatherer times, basically one of three things is going to happen. She's going to run away from the tiger and survive. She's going to fight off the tiger and survive or tiger's going to eat her and she'll die. Regardless of the outcome, the stress is short-lived. I like to say that she survives. She runs away quite safely with her and her baby And she gets back to her settlement, back to her cave, debriefs about it, has a bit of a cry, tells everyone how brave she was and then calms down. And in a little while, she's back 
into rest and digest mode, back into that parasympathetic nervous system. So that's acute stress. I also think she's been able to sort of use a lot of the things like the glucose and all of that by this running that she's done. You make a very good point. Absolutely. She's had all that that surge of sugar and she has just pounded the grass and run away for her dear life and her muscles have burned all this up. All right, so that's our lovely hunter-gatherer woman. Do you know? Uh, do you know what's a bit funny? If you, if anyone ever wants to see this in true life, like you only have to look at a cat that gets frightened. Yes, it does this big <laughs> puff, and we, and we would have too when we were much hairier because that makes us look big and scary. You know, the fascinating thing about us humans is it actually doesn't matter what causes the stress. We only have one stress response. So it doesn't matter if you're stressed about being chased by a bear or you're stressed because you're running late for school drop-off or you're stressed because your mortgage payments are due or you're stressed because you're giving a public talk. It's exactly the same physiological response. And if you could imagine that you are sitting in a car running late for school drop-off and you're feeling stressed, how all of those physiological adaptations, really, they're not helping you at all. If you're sitting in a car having elevated blood pressure, increased inflammation, thicker, more clotty blood and elevated blood sugar, it's really not helping you at all especially the elevated blood sugar, because without a bear or a tiger to run away from or to fight off, that extra blood sugar that gets released in response to a cortisol rise hasn't got anywhere to go. It just sits in your bloodstream. But then, of course, it can't stay in your bloodstream because high blood sugar is dangerous and our body doesn't want that. It wants equilibrium. It wants to keep blood sugar nice and normal. So your body then releases insulin. And the insulin then takes that sugar and stores it away as fat. So the stress causes a cortisol rise, which causes an insulin rise, which causes fat storage and also locks our metaphorical woodshed. So simply getting stressed, sitting down, getting stressed in your car is actually a fattening experience. Oh, my God. This is like it's mind blowing, isn't it, to think that you know, from where we've come from, where it was all about calories in, calories out, to now knowing that you can do, not change your food at all, and that will affect your your weight, whether it's, you know, causes a plateau or for some people, even an increase. Our bodies, gosh, they're amazing, sometimes to our detriment. So we live in a, in a over busy world. What do you suggest that people do about this? There are some really, really simple things that we can do to reduce our stress and also to reduce the harms of the stress that we experience. So I mentioned two types of of acute stress there, the being chased by the saber-toothed tiger and running late for school drop-off. The problem with modern society is that what causes us stress isn't acute things like short-lived things like bears and tigers. It is mortgage repayments and constantly running late for work and difficult people at work. There are so many things that cause us chronic stress. And then when we're in this state of chronically elevated cortisol, we get chronically elevated blood pressure, chronically elevated 
inflammation. Our brains can be chronically hyper alert and hyper vigilant, which can precipitate all kinds of emotional distress. The inflammation, the elevated blood pressure can be implicated in chronic diseases, poor heart health, lots and lots of problems as well as weight gain. So chronic stress is really, really dangerous. It's really yuck and it is best that we do everything that we can to avoid it. So kind of a two-step process. The first is not always that easy and it can be quite confronting, but to think about what you can do in your life to reduce the stress that you experience. You know, what can you say no to? What can you let go of? What can you reframe? It's our last episode we talked about, you know, the thought model and that we are in fact in control of our thoughts. And often if we simply, it's not so simple, but it's not easy, if we simply change the way that we think about certain circumstances, we can reduce the stress that we experience. That's the first part. And it can be a pretty yucky thing for people to think about, but still a very, very important thing to think about. I think um, saying no is, again, simple, but actually difficult, but so powerful. Being able to affirm your boundaries, and again, we can do a whole episode on boundaries, but that is really critical to reducing your load, isn't it? So it's about reducing your load and then changing the way you look at your load. Absolutely. Boundaries are so important. Rosie Park said, a well-timed no has the power to change the world. And no is a wonderfully powerful word. Saying no to things that overload you, that cause you stress, asserting your boundaries, it has life-changing potential. Yes, absolutely. So that's like addressing the causes as much as you can. However, you cannot and you probably wouldn't want to eliminate all stress in your life. It's very unrealistic to think that you can do that. You can't just lock yourself away in a place where you never, ever have to deal with anyone who ever might be even slightly challenging. This just isn't going to happen. Your children aren't going to be perfectly well behaved all the time. That's not going to happen either. So some stress is absolutely unavoidable. But this is a really wonderful thing with actually very, very simple and quick and easy techniques, you can reduce the harm from the stress that you experience. And to describe this, I'm going back to the physiology. So I mentioned before these words, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest and the fight or flight. What I'm talking about is our autonomic nervous system. And our autonomic nervous system is like the part of our brain and spinal cord and nerves, our entire nervous system that controls heart rate, blood pressure, skin temperature, digestion, all of these things that we do not consciously think about, but tick along to keep us alive. That's the autonomic nervous system. And it does have these two main modes. 
the stress pathway, the fight or flight or sympathetic nervous system, and the rest and digest, the relaxation or the parasympathetic nervous system. We can actually turn on our parasympathetic nervous system. We can switch it on. So it's kind of like a switch. You can switch from sympathetic to parasympathetic with active relaxation. Active relaxation is not lying on the couch watching Netflix. Although lying on the couch watching Netflix has a place, it's not an inherently bad thing to do, but that's passive relaxation. What I'm talking about with active relaxation is meditation and or mindfulness. It is taking time to very, very consciously allow your mind and body a moment to be present and to relax. And when you do this, even if you don't think you're doing it particularly well, you turn on your parasympathetic nervous system. You sort of, you dial it up. You dial up the rest and digest mode and you dial down the fight or flight mode. And the truly beautiful thing about active relaxation is that those wonderful physiological effects of increasing the rest and digest mode actually last well beyond the period of active relaxation itself. So blood pressure goes down, cortisol goes down, blood sugar goes down, the blood gets less clotty, the mind becomes clearer. Basically the opposite of all of the things that happen in fight or flight happen in rest and digest. And if you get into a regular pattern of some active relaxation, it rebalances your entire nervous system. And it really is not an exaggeration to say that everything can change for the better. That's wonderful, Mez. I'm quite relaxed just sitting here. It's funny. (laughs) Whenever you say those phrases, rest and digest, I imagine this sort of pride of lions who have, you know, had their dinner and now they're just lolling around resting and digesting. And I guess, yeah, they're pretty calm. That's exactly what they're doing. They're lying in the sun, grooming themselves, watching their cubs play, feeling fine. You know, that's how we evolved to actually spend most of our time in that rest and digest mode. People will put up a lot of resistance. I hear this a lot um, when I suggest that some meditation or mindfulness would be helpful for people to manage their weight, to manage their mindset, to manage their health and wellness. I almost always, almost always will get this response, which is, I can't do that. I can't turn my mind off. I can't relax. I tried it. It's impossible. My mind doesn't relax. I can't turn it off. I don't know about you, Lucy. Do you hear that one a lot? Absolutely. In fact, I often, you know, I thought that myself for a long time. I have one of those crazy busy brains that runs around and like a, to use another dog analogy, just an untrained (laughs) dog sniffing every bush it could find. Yes, absolutely. Mine's something like a swarm of bees just sort of flying around all over the place. Yeah. So, how I tackle this with people is to explain that the purpose of mindfulness, and I will often prescribe just three minutes of mindful breathing to begin with, three minutes a day. The purpose is to not 
shut your mind off completely, have it totally blank, not a thought in your head, and be propelled into some Dalai Lama, you know, like state of complete bliss. That's not it at all. The purpose of that three minutes of mindful breathing is to notice when your mind wanders and gently bring it back, to let your mind wander and gently bring it back. It is to bring awareness to your mind and your thoughts and to just gently over and over again with kindness, with compassion, to gently bring it back to the breath. It doesn't have to be the breath. It could be anything. You could focus on a leaf blowing in the wind or music. You could focus on music. But breath is very freely available. You could do it anywhere. And slow breathing has the added benefit of turning on our parasympathetic nervous system. So I tell people that it's like a mental dance. When you sit or stand and you decide to do your three minutes of mindful breathing, your brain will fly off in a million directions. That's just what brains do. Brains are thinking machines. They just generate thought after thought after thought. And you can't stop your brain from thinking any more than you can stop your heart from beating. And the purpose is not to stop your heart or your brain. The purpose is to bring awareness. So when you focus on your breathing, but your mind goes off to the billion things you've got to do this morning, you simply notice that and bring it back to the breath. And then it flies off about that really embarrassing thing that happened when you were 10 years old. That's fine. You just notice it and you gently bring it back to your breathing. Our brains will constantly want to be pulled into the past or the present or often actually both the past and the present at the same time. But by repeatedly bringing your mind back to the present, you increase that parasympathetic nervous system and you buffer your body against the harms of stress. That's wonderful. Not only do you buffer your body against the harms of stress, it's free. You don't have to pay a scrap. You get these wonderful, incredible results with no side effects and cost you nothing. It truly is one of the most powerful things you can do for your health. And it is so simple and easy. I think the only really tricky thing is doing it. And once you manage to get the habit of doing it, just like we have the habit of brushing our teeth each day, once you're in the habit, everything changes for the better. Wonderful, Mares. All right, I think we'd better leave it there. I'm going to run off and do a bit of meditating now. Um, Well, maybe sort of glide off slowly. Uh, (laughs) But we hope you found that helpful. Darling listeners, if you are loving our podcast, we would love you to pop a rating in if if you're listening on Apple. It really helps the podcast, I guess, be reached by more people. And that's really our aim of the game, to spread this message of health and wellness and kind of try and help Australia out of the depths of poor health that we find ourselves. Bye-bye. We'll see you next week, darlings. Bye now. So, my lovely listeners, that ends this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. And I'm Dr. Mary Barson. We're from Real Life Medicine. To contact us, please visit rlmedicine.com. And until next time, 
Thanks for listening. listening.